to invite you to join me in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 1. If you <clears throat> have a hard time finding Ezekiel, uh, one easy way to, to locate it is to open your Bible up right to the middle, and most likely you'll hit the book of Psalms. And if you're a little to the right, you'll hit the book of Isaiah. And so just flip a little to the right, past Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and past the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Lamentations, and you'll bump into Ezekiel. Right? That was easy, right? <clears throat> Once you have your place there, I want to invite you to stand with me. Let's take in this initiating chapter of one of the largest books in the Bible. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Chebar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans, by the Chebar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. And the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each of them went out straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had a face of an eagle. Such were their faces. And their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. And each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went, without turning, as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright. And out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures. One for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels, verse 16, and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of beryl. And the four had the same likeness their appearance had and construction being as it were a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of the four directions without turning as they went. And their rims were tall and awesome 
and the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Wherever the spirit wanted to go, they went, and the wheels rose along with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, these went. And when those stood, these stood. And when those rose from the earth, the wheels rose along with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse, same word used in Genesis in the creation account, shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another. And each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And above the expanse, over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow, that is a rainbow, that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Once more, let's petition the Lord in prayer, just briefly. Gracious Father, as we have committed this night to you, offered our prayers of intercession up to you, uh, we ask now uh, for uh, a, a big request. We ask that you would make uh, the astounding, the symbolic, the sometimes confusing, ancient, foreign, and unfamiliar nature of these words and this work clear to us. For our formation into your likeness, for the sake of your gospel, and our joy. In Christ's name we pray. May be seated. There was a rabbinical tradition 
not to allow young rabbinical students to study the book of Ezekiel until they were 30 years old for fear that they would become, quote, confused and despise God's word. Well, we can kind of see why, <laughs> right? I mean, that, that description that we understand and know to be the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord is in and of itself pretty wild. Once you get into Ezekiel's street theater, as it were, it, it gets worse. It gets more bizarre. Now that said, I don't think the Spirit blinds our eyes. And I think we can appreciate the rich symbolism without becoming disillusioned with God's Word. And these things, as with the rest of Scripture, are given to us uh, for... Uh, for our spiritual formation, that we be, would become complete, right? Whole people, whole disciples. And so that said, let's try to get our heads around what we just read, and more importantly, the context around what we just read. I've divided our time up by way of introduction this week, the first of 12 in Ezekiel, under the following headings. If you're taking notes, first and foremost, let's consider the man. The man. Ezekiel. I find Ezekiel's character uh, to be one with whom I have sympathy. Uh, some characters in the Bible I relate to, like Bez Bezalel and Aholiab, these were the carpenters, the craftsmen who crafted all of the articles for the temple. They are otherwise not known to history but they're known to have the Spirit of God in them, and the Spirit of God in them compelled them to use their hands to craft beautiful works of art for the temple service. I relate to those men because as a man, I like to use my hands. Putting your hands on tools and materials honestly makes a lot more sense than what I do up here a lot of times. There's a tangible result, you see. I relate to Bezalel. Others, other characters in the Bible I'm in awe of, someone like the Apostle John. He is described as the apostle whom Jesus loved. He couldn't seemingly be killed, and he was on the island of Patmos observing what we believe to be clearly the end of all time in visions from God. Uh, others in the Bible I pity, someone like King Saul. He's a tragic hero. But with Ezekiel, I find myself feeling some sympathy for his life experiences. Let's talk about why. He is of the priestly tribe of Levi. So that means that he would have been raised preparing to invest in the quote-unquote family business, watching and learning from his father what it would mean to be a priest of God in the region of Judah, serving at the temple in the capital city of Jerusalem. Now there is an educational and a practical side to that preparation. Uh, learning the Torah, rehearsing the feasts and sacrifices, learning to recite prayers, memorizing huge swaths of scripture. These guys could quote just big chunks of the Bible, the Torah specifically. 
learning and reciting all of these things, but, but practically, he'd also learn how to keep the sheep that were raised for daily and monthly offerings. He'd be learning how to butcher the sacrificial animals, how to skin them, how to portion them up, what parts were to be burned on the altar, what parts were to be cooked for the priest, and at various offerings, which ones would be shared with the people, which ones were exclusively for God, and so on. All of this is complex, symbolic, and precise duty prescribed, all with very high stakes. High stakes indeed. When, when the, If you were lucky enough to graduate up to a particular level as a priest, at some point you would actually enter into the, that, that holy of holies, the, the inner chamber of the tabernacle or the temple, and offer the prayers of the saints, the prayers of God's people, there before the Lord. And this was such sacred business with high stakes that they would tie a rope to the ankle of the priest just in case he messed up and fell over dead, they could pull him out. It's meant to be a joke, everybody. There's a laugh at that. High stakes, right? There were holy days, like the Day of Atonement, where he was the intercessor. And there was a lot to learn, an important role to play in the life and calendar of God's people for a young, would-be priest. I think of my son, Pate. And just raising him up, teaching him what would be the family business. And you can imagine. But in Ezekiel's case, at 25 years old, five years before he was officially to be sworn in as a priest, Numbers 4 prescribes the age of 30. So at 25, an army of Babylon sweeps through Judah, and Ezekiel is carried away to a foreign land never to set foot in his homeland again, he would die in exile, never to lay eyes on the temple again, never to fulfill his young life's ambitions as a priest in the household of God. 25 years old, and his life just blew up. And then later on in exile, his wife dies, and God tells him that he's not allowed to mourn for her. He's not allowed to mourn her passing. I find a lot of sympathy for Ezekiel. Tough job. Not only that, but you find in chapter 2 the calling of Ezekiel. You can just read it briefly. Let's skip ahead to verse 3. He, God, said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. All right, I'm sending you. The descendants, verse 4, are also impudent and stubborn, I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Listen to this. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. So I'm sending you, you're going to speak on my behalf, and their response will be like briars and thorns and scorpions to you. But don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed at their looks, like when some of you fall asleep or something like that. Uh, and you shall speak my words to them, verse 7, whether they hear or refuse, for they are a rebellious house. Fascinating. It, 
I'm going to send you and you're going to preach and their response will be to you like horns. <laughs> Poor guy, right? Well, that's the man. That's Ezekiel, 30 years old. Everyone, every major commentator and historian agrees that verse 1, in the 30th year, it's a reference to the age of Ezekiel at the time that he saw this vision. So that's the man. Let's consider number two, the circumstances. Uh, if you're curious, you can read the account of these things in 2 Kings chapter 24. The chapters of 24 and 25 of the book of 2 Kings essentially parallel. They are the quick snapshot account of the three-pronged Babylonian invasion of Israel, or we should say Judah, the southern kingdom. Ezekiel was 25 when he was carried away, captured the king Jehoiakim. He is the grandson of Josiah. They install Jehoiakim's uncle as a puppet king, and they take 10,000 Israeli citizens, educated, skilled caliber, off to Babylon. Now, again, this was the second of three invasions. We use round numbers when we talk about the, the order of events in Israel's history. In 722, the Assyrian army invaded the northern kingdom called Israel. In 586 B.C., the temple was destroyed. Uh, but that's not, uh, that's not an entirely accurate picture of the whole story were three successive invasions. The first was in 605 B.C. That saw the seizure of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Thirteen years later, uh, we see the seizure of Ezekiel and his countrymen, the second invasion. And then about another 11 to 12 years later, the final invasion of the Babylon, the Babylonian army, 586 B.C., sees the destruction of the temple and the walls and pretty much utter ruin of the entire capital city. There, after Ezekiel is uh, carted off, he spends five years languishing. His life's dreams and ambitions are up in smoke, no hope for a return, no expectation of a turn of fortune until at 30 years old, again, when he is supposed to be sworn in as a priest, he has an amazing vision, and he's given a calling, not to be a priest, but a prophet. A prophet with a message of judgment that turns to a message of repentance, and one of hope, and one of judgment. So those are the circumstances. He is with the other exiles in Babylon. Five years waiting on his 30th birthday, some say, it's fourth month and the fifth day, but he turns 30 and he sees this vision. Well, let's continue to place this number three in the Bible. There's the man, there's the circumstances, but let's, let's get this clearly in our minds in the course of events in the Bible. In Genesis, God creates everything, right? Simple enough, right? It's the beginning. He calls Abraham Abram, at the time, out of a place called Ur of the Chaldeans, or of the Chaldees. 
basically it's Iran. It's along the Euphrates River. It is the oldest, among the oldest settlements post-flood along the Euphrates River, settled by Nimrod and his descendants. Ur of the Chaldees later would become Babylonia, the center point of the Babylonian Empire. So in Genesis, God creates, and here we have the, the backdrop of an ancient location east of Israel. In Exodus, God rescues Israel out of Egyptian bondage. 75 people who are descended from Abraham, Jacob, and his sons, and their children, and his grandchildren, 75, they go during a famine to Egypt, and they wind up spending 400 years there, eventually coming into their slave labor camps until God, with a mighty hand, dramatically rescues them out of slavery. 75 people over 400 years turned into several million. They had an army, a fighting force of over 600,000, when this nation of people and livestock and herds and carts walked out of Egypt, they walked north following the pillar of fire and smoke representative of the presence of God leading them. There at the base of Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with Israel and he says, you'll be my people, I'll be your God. This is my law. Keep it, I'll bless you. Break it, I'll discipline you. They say, okay. And then they immediately break it. And then so for 40 years, they wander the wilderness. That's the book of Numbers. The book of Joshua accounts, recounts this nation that had been wandering. It, it details the conquering of the promised land, the land God promised to give to Abraham's descendants. And so by the end of the book of Joshua, Israel is settled in what we know of today as the land of Israel. The nation was settled in the land. From there, we move into a 400-year period that's called the Judges because there was no centralized federal government. There was no king, and, quote, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, which means sin and disobedience. And so the 400 years or so of the Judges was a cycle Sin, consequence, deliverance. Sin, consequence, deliverance. Until the prophet Samuel anoints King Saul. And for 120 years, through three successive kings, King Saul, the very famous King David, who fought Goliath with a stick, and, or a stone and a sling, and then his son, the wisest king and the wisest man ever to live, Solomon. 120 years, 40 years of successive kingship. There was... There was unification of the whole peoples. There was the keeping of God's law, relatively speaking, the, the abolition of idol worship, success militarily, the broadest expanse of their territorial reach and control, and incredible, unspeakable success and financial blessing. But with the death of Solomon, the kingdom splits the northern kingdom becomes what's known as Israel in the record-keeping, and the southern kingdom becomes what's known as Judah 
two kingdoms. The northern kingdoms pick their own king. The southern kingdom uh, sticks with the descendants of David. First and second kings and first and second chronicles then, then chart, if you will, the next 200 years of mostly wicked kings leading the northern kingdom into sin and idolatry until the Assyrian army, who is situated northeast of Israel, invade as a divine consequence. 722, the capital city is destroyed. The southern kingdom, they had a few more decent kings. They hung in there for about another 140 years until the successive rounds of Babylonian invasion that we just talked about. That leads us up to Ezekiel sitting with the rest of the exiles in Babylon. And that kind of puts it in the series of events. The contemporaries of Ezekiel are Jeremiah. He's somewhere in Israel prophesying, preaching, traveling. Habakkuk. Of course, Daniel, for again, Daniel was carted off in the first wave in 605 B.C., and he was well on his way to becoming a higher up in the kingdom before Ezekiel begins his ministry. Both of them were in Babylon at the time, or at the same time. There's no record of them knowing the other existed. And you also have Obadiah. Finally, you might think about someone named King Hezekiah, a famous king. He was famous for two reasons. He, uh, he asked the Lord to, to heal him and extend his life and to show him a sign. And the sun, like, moved backwards. And then he was miraculously healed. And, and, and as a result of this miraculous healing, he had these visitors come to pay tribute. Wow, we heard, we heard about this miracle. We saw the sun sort of go backwards in the sky. We heard that was you and your God. Uh, we've come to bring you a gift. And Hezekiah says, well, thanks check out my crib right MTV Cribs everybody's too old for that except for me okay check out my house check out my goods let me show you all the blessings of the Lord well these visitors were from Babylon and Isaiah comes to the king Hezekiah he goes who were those guys oh they were just some guys from Babylon who wanted to come congratulate me on you know my miraculous recovery and all he goes, what'd they say? What'd you show them? What'd you do? Oh, I showed them everything. Isaiah says, those guys are going to be back. And they're going to take it all. And they're going to take your grandsons who will be on the throne, your kings that are in your lineage, and they'll make them eunuchs in the palace of Babylon. And Hezekiah says, okay, so it won't happen to me in my lifetime. All right, well, that's okay. That's how it reads. It's bonkers. And so while Ezekiel and Hezekiah have nothing to do with each other, there's a strange connection, right? The last thing that you might think about is Josiah. Josiah was like the great-grandson of Hezekiah. He's the last good king that reigns in Judah. And then his grandson initiates the first wave of Babylonian invasion. Now, there's much more that we could say about this. I could go on and on and on about the events surrounding the invasion, but I think that, by way of summary, that kind of puts it in some measure of perspective.
let's talk from the Bible timeline. Let's get into the message. What's the message of Ezekiel? Well, we'll spend the next 11 weeks, tonight plus 11, considering the big messages, the big pictures of this book. My goal is always is when it comes to especially these big Old Testament books on Wednesday evenings, is not to attempt to exposit every verse. We would It would take several years. Um, my goal is for you to come to this book again and read it differently, right? Um, instead of reading it with dark, dark, dark sunglasses on, <laughs> maybe things are a little clearer next time. That's the whole goal. That and to worship the Lord together in what is the purest form of worship, the study of his scriptures. But that's the goal, just to understand this book a little bit better so that when we come to it again, it makes a little more sense than it did before. For the first six to seven years of Ezekiel's preaching ministry, he's focused on convincing the exiles that their own sin is the reason for their demise. Do not think that God will punish Babylon for this. Babylon invaded Israel by God's decree as God's belt of discipline against a wayward child. And so his message first centers on the coming fall of Jerusalem. I mean, consider this. He's there with at least 10,000 other Israelis, Hebrews. Back home... The temple still stands. The walls of Jerusalem still stand. And six to seven years after he sees this vision, that's when the temple is destroyed by the invading army. And so for the first six to seven years, he's saying, Jerusalem will fall. And it's because of our sin nationally. Do not think otherwise. Don't waste your breath praying that God would save the city. It's doomed. It's God's judgment that's coming. Do not listen to the prophets who tell you things are going to be okay. They're liars. This is God's judgment. He confronts the sin of other nations in a section 25 through 32. It almost seems out of nowhere unless you understand the big picture. He explains why Israel was punished. He calls them to acknowledge their complicity in the matter. And then his message shifts from, from one of judgment, sin, consequence, to one of hope. As is typified in the famous new heart of flesh in chapter 36. And then finally his message is one of restoration. Restoration for the land, for the people, but also for all of humanity. The closing nine chapters, they read more like the book of Revelation than like the rest of Ezekiel's prophecies. They speak of the new temple and the river of life that flows from the temple of God and the, the, the new humanity. It's tremendous. Restoration of all humanity, restoration of the whole earth, the coming of the new heavens and the new earth, a new temple at the end of this age of grace in which we now live. And so that's his message. It's an interesting arc. Let's consider number five, the big picture. The big picture is probably best summarized by this verse in chapter 37, 
verses 27 and 28, God says this, My dwelling place shall be with them, that is, his people. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, and my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. That's the big picture. It's the reason why the, some of the closing verses in the Bible are eerily similar. At the end of all things in Revelation, the foretelling of the end of time, the judgment of God rained on to sinful humanity, the judgment of God enacted upon sin, the devil, and death itself. After all of these things comes this new heaven, this new earth, the new throne, the, the, the water of God flowing from the throne of God. And what does he say? What's the big climactic exclamation at the end? They'll be my people, and I'll be their God, and I'll dwell with them. I think it's helpful for us to think critically about this seeming concern of the Lord that he dwell with his people. I mean, consider the Exodus account, the fashioning of the tabernacle elements. What was God's objective? To dwell with his people, right? He will be their God. He will dwell with them. They'll be his people. What happened in the incarnation? God dwelled with us in human form walked among us experienced our life's experiences our struggles and our pains intimately acquainted with his creation and dwelled with us what did Jesus say before he left he says I gotta go but don't worry I won't leave you fatherless I won't leave you alone when I go I'll send the helper and the helper guide you in all things, remind you of what I taught you. He'll lead you. He'll comfort you. He'll dwell with you and in you. In this age of grace in which we now live, where the gospel spread like wildfire all over the face of the earth, and then the, the truest the fullest, the final, the grandest of restorations happens in the end of all things when, like the Garden of Eden, God dwells with, walks with, talks with. No impediment, no sin, no evil, no stoppage, no temporary measures, no just... So it's, it's good for us to not overlook these statements when God says, my dwelling place shall be with them and I'll be their God. So much of the big picture of Ezekiel is also then centered on God's holiness. Because what's the problem? God's dwelling with man, but there's a problem. 
sin. But we note in Ezekiel, we'll see again and again that God's heart is to rescue and to redeem. And so if you can, if you can think about this in this sort of abstract or esoteric way, God has selected the nation of Israel to act in human history as a type, uh, as a, a microcosm of all humanity. In them, in Israel, we see man's utter inability to meet God's standard, no matter how good he makes it for them. No matter how intimately he dwells with them, nor no matter how powerfully he fights for them, nor how majestically he reveals himself to them. My kids asked me the other night, we were doing one of those dinner time game questions, if you could um, you know, meet anyone, who would it be? I think it was one of the questions. If you could go anywhere, where would you go? And then one of the questions was, if you could go anywhere in any time of human history, where would you go? And my first answer was, I want to go to Mount Sinai when it is erupting in the flame of the presence of God. I want to see it. I want to hear it. I want to hear that sound that Israel said to Moses, we don't want to hear the voice of God anymore. We're freaking out. You talk to him. Said it was like the sound of trumpet blasts when God would speak. Flashes of lightning. The earth quaking beneath their feet. Smoke and fire billowing up from the mountain. And this was just a likeness of the appearance of the glory of God. I would wonder how they could worship a cow that they made out of gold earrings after that. But you know what I mean? I'd want to see it. And yet, for some bizarre, unexplainable reason, they did worship a cow after seeing that. See, in Israel, it's, it's a microcosm of humanity. No matter how powerfully God displays himself, no matter how patiently God works, no matter how, how like majestically and, and impressively he reveals himself, he fought armies with hornets. He killed armies overnight with angels. He confused armies with a couple of lepers. And no matter what, Israel kept doing what? Serving other gods, worshiping other gods, gratifying their fleshly, most base desires, lust and gluttony and power and anger and greed. Not the foreign nations who never saw the mountain of God. Not the foreign nations who didn't have the, the pillar of fire and smoke dwelling in their midst. Not them. The people who had it best? Well, what's the point? In Israel, we see man's utter inability to meet God's standard. We simply cannot do it. We will not do it. It matters not the circumstances. But God demonstrates his love and his character to the world by doing what is required in us so that he might be our God and our king, our father and our friend. This is pictured 
in God's dwelling with man. He can't do it unless he makes us new from the very ground up, from the inside out. And so comes the prophecy in Ezekiel 36. I will take out your heart of stone, the core of who you are, the very centermost part of your being, from which comes your will and your desires. I'll take that stony bit out and I'll give you a new one, the heart of flesh, Jesus said, unless you are born again of the Spirit, you will not see the face of God. But God said, I'll give that to you. I'll give that to you so that you can dwell with me and I can dwell with you. It'll cost him everything. But he'll do it. So that's the big picture. Let's consider verse uh, number six, key verses. Key verses. We read some of them already. In chapter two, verses three through six, there's God's calling of Ezekiel. That's key because it sets the stage for, for Ezekiel's job description, if, if you will. You're going to speak, and their response will be like thorns and scorpions. Their looks... Uh, will put you to tears, but don't be afraid. Chapter 18, verse 4, is a, a, a summary of God's requirement of mankind. This is what I require of man to dwell with me and me with him. This is the standard. It's a key verse because it's part of the big picture. Verse 33, chapter 33, verse 11 speaks of God's desire for mankind. This is what he wants. He wants to rescue. Again, chapter 36, verse 26, God promises to give us a new heart, a new heart of flesh. He replaces the heart of stone. And then finally, all the way, way there at the end, chapter 48, verse 35. The name of this new city, the new city God establishes, where he dwells with his people and they dwell with him, it will simply have this name. It won't be called Jerusalem. It won't be called, you know, Eden. It'll be called the Lord is there because there's no, there's no better name. There, there isn't a name that could, that could supersede it, that could surpass it. We'll just call it, the Lord is there. <laughs> and this, friends, in that final verse, 48, verse 35, it, it, it again, it, it pictures the greatest joy of Christianity. When we come to Christ for forgiveness and hope, for the promise of eternal life after death, for the alleviation of a guilty conscience, when we come to him for direction and vision for a, a life that has otherwise gone haywire or wayward, we come to him in, in a, lot of, a lot of ways for these reasons. We feel guilty or we feel lost. We feel the tug of God compelling us to acknowledge our sin and our sinfulness. And what do we receive in return? 
And if we were to take a poll of the room, I would get a, a variety of answers. What do we receive in return when we repent? You want to do it? Let's do just do a poll. Who wants to volunteer? What, what do we receive? One word. Peace. Salvation. Hope. Mercy. Eternity. Heaven. Freedom. Forgiveness. Cleansing. Any more? Joy. New heart. Two words, breaking the rules. Go repent. What we just did is not uncommon. This is exactly what we think. And this is exactly the limited scope of our experience. All of those things are true. But what we receive is Christ himself. And when we grasp that, when we get that, that the ultimate joy is not freedom from sin, peace in spite of our turmoil, forgiveness from past failure, hope for a future, um, assurance that death will not have the sting or the hold, confidence in eternal life, when we get past all of that, eventually we get to the real prize, which is that we will have Christ. So we're told we get a crown of glory and we'll cast that crown at Jesus' feet. You know, we're told that we'll have eternal life and freedom from sin and forgiveness from our failures and, and all of that. But what we forget is that all the depictions of the new heaven and the new earth, what is everyone doing? Worshiping Jesus. He's the gift. The Lord. The Lord is there. So there we have key verses. Most importantly, that final one, the Lord is there. This is the gift that he gives to us. It is himself. Well, I think that's a good place to stop. Would you pray with me? Father, we have come this evening to, uh, to examine your word. Uh, we've come with varied levels of biblical experience and knowledge. Uh, we've come with a, a, a wide range between us of experiences walking with you, years of life spent living under your grace. And so we all approach this ancient story uh, differently. Um, but Father, uh, if we have the one thing in common, then we have everything in common. 
and that's that the Lord is there. There at the throne of our hearts, there at the center of our affections, there uh, is Christ, seated on the throne, gleaming with the rainbow on all sides. There he is, on the throne in heaven, on the throne in our hearts, our Lord and Savior, the captain of our salvation. Yes, our source of joy. Yes, he is our peace. Yes, he assures us of salvation and eternity. Yes, he is the substitutionary atonement for our sin. Yes, he is the one who took our sin and gave to us his righteousness, ultimately. Father, you gave yourself to us. And may this be uh, our greatest reason for joy. Will you help us to see that it is? Bless now, I pray, these folks as they leave this place, the remainder of their work week, and as we anticipate the assembly on Sunday. Watch over them and keep them. And may your word rattle around in their hearts and minds, drawing them back to you, drawing them back to your word, drawing them to repentance and prayer. And then we look forward to next week as we consider a few more chapters of this glorious, glorious prophetic book. In Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen. All right. Good night, folks.